Well, as we begin tonight, in your own mind, as you think about Jesus, and regardless of who you are and where you're from, when you hear that name, Jesus, something will come to mind. And my question tonight as we begin is, what is the extent of the power of that Jesus in your mind? What is the extent of his power? What are his limits? Because we are naturally limited beings by being human. We are not limitless, we are limited. And therefore, because of that reality and because of our sin, we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that God is also limited. That Jesus is also limited. He's just like us in that he's human. And, and without meaning to, we somehow place limits too. Especially when things get difficult. Jesus couldn't possibly do that, could he? So a key question today as we continue our look at Mark, if you remember, I was in the book of Mark last time I was with you, Mark 5. As we continue on with that, I want you to think about what you truly believe about Jesus. We called him the great physician last time. Does he truly have the power to save you from your deepest, darkest sins? Or is that just a step too far? I want to call you today, whatever limitations you have in your mind of Jesus, to throw them away tonight. As we see Jesus in this text we're going to look at, who has ultimate power. So let's turn to Mark chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be today. And I'll just give you a quick reminder of where we're at in the story, and then we'll read the text together. Um, we, we looked last time at the, a section in the middle of Mark 5 of the lady who was bleeding. And this comes really after five chapters of Mark preparing us for his, you know, or, or adding to his main idea, which is that Jesus is God. Chapter 1 verse 1 tells us this, as Mark says very clearly right from the first sentence, that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is concerned with helping us see that Jesus is God. That he is the fulfillment of the prophecies that were made about this suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. And so far, Jesus' public ministry has very clearly demonstrated that. He's healed the sick. He's recruited disciples. He's been preaching with power and authority to the point where even demons obey him. And actually... In chapter 6, verse 56, we see some of the extent of of what Jesus was able to do with regards to his healing ministry in in demonstrating his power. 6.56 says, Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But there are a couple of other places as well where we're told that essentially Jesus' ministry almost eradicated illness from from this area, from the areas that he was in. Everyone who came to him, in, in certainly in 656, he cured, he healed. So we see Jesus bringing this, this almost like a state like Eden, where there's no sickness and, and illness, back to Israel. It's an amazing image. And what must have that have been like living at that time? And why? Why did he 
do this healing ministry so prolifically? Why was it so important? And the answer isn't one that I think we immediately appreciate or like. He didn't do these things necessarily for the people. And he certainly didn't do these things because we're supposed to copy him, as many of the, the, the charismatic teachers today would, would say. He didn't heal the sick and the lame just for the sake of those people. He loved them and he wanted to show compassion and kindness. But that wasn't the point. The point of his miracles was to demonstrate what Mark is trying to teach us, that he is God. This is God incarnate. So to this end, he has demonstrated his power over deformities, the man with the limit, with the uh, the, the withered hand. He's demonstrated his power over creation when he calmed the storm. He's demonstrated his power over the demonic forces where the Gerasene demoniac falls at his feet and begs that he not destroy him. But there's a question left unanswered. There's an area that Jesus hasn't touched yet. What about death? What about death? We know that illness and pain and sadness are all in this world because of sin. And the ultimate result of sin is that most ultimate of consequences, death. We see that from the very beginning. And God said to Adam in Genesis 3.3 that if you disobey me, death will be the result. And then Paul in Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Physical death, yes, that comes, but spiritual death. So the unanswered question hanging over Jesus' ministry at this point is this. What about death? And really what this question is asking from the outset, what we need to ask ourselves is this. Do we truly believe that Jesus can save from the ultimate consequence of death? If we get to the core of it, we have to answer this question. Can Jesus deal with this most ultimate reality? Can this man really save us from the ultimate penalty? When the rubber meets the road and this life ends, can the man who we have put our faith in do anything about our eternal state? Well, we see the answer in this passage today. So if you were thinking that this is a story, when we look at the story of Jairus, which is what we're looking at today, If you're thinking that that story is just a lovely little kind of ditty about Jesus coming and, you know, lifting this little girl up, there's so much more to it than that. This is one of the few demonstrations that the incarnate God gives of his ultimate authority and power over sin and death. This is almighty God on display. This is Jesus demonstrating that he is here on a mission and that nothing is going to stand in his way. Because he is not just a man, like we saw last time. He is the God-man, fully man and fully God. And the one tasked with the ultimate salvation for those who would trust in him. So with that being said, let's read our text and let's get into it. So we're going to go from Mark chapter 5 and we're going to start in verse 21. Mark 5, 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. 
And if you jump now to verse 35, we're going to continue on from there. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astonished. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And they said something should be given to her to eat. This wonderful story breaks itself quite neatly into four scenes. And each scene demonstrates an effect of death. I don't know if you've noticed how many times death was mentioned as we read through the passage, but it's mentioned in each one of these scenes. Now, each gospel writer has his own kind of set of characteristics, his own aspect that he brings to his rendition of the gospel message. And Mark is known for his particularly emotive language and the detail he gives. He often gives emotions and and colors where some of the other gospel writers don't. He gives us uh, this particularly vivid account. And sometimes I think we forget, and Mark helps us see, that the Bible isn't a collection full of myths and made-up characters. These are real people with real emotions and real difficulties and real struggles. And we're supposed to sympathize and empathize with them, not just to stir up emotions, but to, to understand the reality of what's going on. And as death is the focus today, we can expect some vivid and varied emotions. So we're going to look at four scenes, and these four scenes are going to demonstrate the effects of death so that we can rejoice in Jesus' power over it. The four scenes will demonstrate the effects of death so that we can rejoice in Jesus' power over it. And we'll see, first of all, the desperation caused by death. Then we'll see the doubt caused by death. Then we'll see the despair caused by death. And then we'll see, most wonderfully, the defeat of death. And I'll explain those as we go along. So scene one, the desperation caused by death. And we see it right on the page. Jesus has crossed over again from the other side. Remember, he's come from the, from where he healed the Gerasene demoniac and they asked him to leave. And so he's crossed back over and he comes to Capernaum. Uh, and in contrast to the reaction of the people in the Gerasenes, the people here flock to him. You know, he's got this crowd around him almost immediately, barely has his feet come off the boat on the shore. And there are people there because they know who he is and what he does. And as is his custom, he stays by the shore. And I think this gives him a little bit more space. So on the beach area, he can have more people there. But also the water of the lake would act as a natural amplifier for his voice. So they'd be able to hear him a little bit better as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why he stays there. But then something unexpected happens. Verse 22, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. And he begs Jesus to help him 
because his daughter is dying. Who is this man? Well, the rulers of the synagogues were administrators. They were called rulers or presidents. And they were responsible for the administration of the worship of the synagogue. So the first question we might ask is, why on the earth, knowing who Jesus is and what he's done, would a synagogue official come to this itinerant, fairly rebellious rabbi? Seems very unlikely, doesn't it? In Luke 13, 14, Jesus is in a Galilean synagogue and he makes the officials indignant because of his willingness to heal on the Sabbath. And at that point, uh, and, and sorry, and at this point in Mark, he's already had some interactions with the Pharisees in Mark 2 and Mark 3. And actually in Mark 3, he's in the synagogue in Capernaum and he heals this man on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees then begin conspiring to destroy him. So for a synagogue leader, much less the synagogue leader of the one that's trying to destroy him, to come to him in broad daylight in front of everybody and fall at his feet, this man was desperate. This is the desperation that death causes. He was absolutely desperate. And like the woman with the hemorrhage, he threw caution to the wind and he ran to Jesus. He was desperate to see him just get to Jesus. And he tells Jesus that his daughter is sick and he implores Jesus to come and help. And he makes this incredible statement of faith in Jesus' abilities, doesn't he? Look there. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please just come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And this is the same kind of faith that the woman with the hemorrhage showed. Remember, she thought, if I can just touch the corner of his garment, then I'll be well. This is an amazing bit of faith. We might ask where this trust in Jesus' power came from. Well, if Jesus is in Capernaum, then Jairus may well have been present for the, for the things that happened in Luke chapter 2 verse 3. When Jesus was approached by the Jewish elders to heal the servant of the centurion. Perhaps Jairus was there and he saw it. He'd already seen Jesus heal someone and he thought, that's what I need. That's why he was desperate to get to him. Regardless of the reason, what we see is the desperation of a loving father who understands the finality and seriousness of death. And he wants to save his daughter from it at all costs, even if it makes him unpopular with his religious colleagues. I wouldn't give two hoots about what my friends thought if my daughter was dying and there was an opportunity for me to go and save her. We can really learn something from Jairus here, can't we? The reality of death. And and our love for those around us should force us to the feet of Jesus. Although we don't know whether Jairus truly believed Jesus was God or not, he adopted the right posture. In the face of insurmountable odds, he came to Christ and he bowed at his feet. And if we have concern for those around us who don't know Christ and are going to go to hell when they die, we need to come to the feet of Jesus. We know that we cannot change people's minds. We know that through good arguments and pleading, we're not going to change a dead heart into an alive one. That has to be and can only be through the work of Christ. So we need to come to his feet and, and beg him and pray and plead him for the hearts and the souls and the minds and the lives of those that we care for. And the reality for those who don't know Jesus today is if you haven't dealt with your sin, death is the price to be paid. 
And if Christ hasn't paid it for you, then that means one day you will have to pay it yourself. I won't read the whole quote, but there's something here from Jonathan Edwards in describing the lostness of men and the power of God. I'll just I'll just read a few sentences. Jonathan Edwards says this. There is no want or lack of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. And I just think that shows us the the need for us to come to the feet of Jesus. Because those that we love and that we care for, if they don't know Christ, then they are fighting a losing battle. And the only hope they have is Jesus. We need to come to him. So if that's you today, or if you can think of someone who that is an example of, then you need to run to Christ for them or to encourage them to run to Christ themselves before it's too late. So we see this appeal from Jairus. And what's Jesus' reaction? Hold on a minute. I've just got off the boat. Give me a minute. No. We're just told. He doesn't even say anything that we're told. He just says, and he went with him. I love that. He just went with him. Absolutely. And he, he, and he goes. But on the way, as we know, Jesus stops to demonstrate his power again, but in the life of someone else, the woman that we spoke about last time. And it's amazing to see that Jesus has no favoritism. Jairus is a synagogue official. He's the top dog. He's a guy, you know, he's got influence. He's got power. Um, I'm not sure if they use the same thing in, 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 in Israel, but I know in Lebanon, there's a phrase called wazta. And that means you have um, influence or that you have, um, yeah, you have influence with people. And he probably had a lot of wazta. Like pe- people needed to get out of his way and, and show him respect. But Jesus doesn't care. He deals with the woman with the hemorrhage who was outcast and, and unclean. He deals with her first. And makes the synagogue official wait. I think that's an amazing thing. There is no favoritism with Jesus. He deals with the one who comes to his feet. And that's really the close of scene one. And we see now this interlude with the woman with the hemorrhage. And we're going to pass over that and jump to verse 35. And we see scene two. Where we see the doubt that's caused by death. Because the worst has happened. While Jesus was helping the other lady, Jairus' daughter has died. And people, presumably relatives, have come to find Jairus and tell him that all hope is gone. The statement of the people where they say to Jesus, don't bother the rabbi anymore or don't bother the teacher anymore, has been taken a number of different ways by people. Some say it could be taken that they were opposed to Jairus even going to Jesus in the first place. They're saying, They don't want Jairus associating with Jesus. Don't bother him anymore. She's dead. Don't, you know, don't worry about it. Don't let him come to the house. Or maybe they were just genuinely concerned not to bother the rabbi because it's pointless. But regardless of their reason, their words speak volumes. Because they're essentially saying this. Jairus, all hope is gone. This man can't do anything to help you. She's beyond anyone's care now. It doesn't matter who this man claims to be. He's not God. There's nothing he can do. Just come home. Resign yourself to your grief and mourn with us. Give up your faith in this man, Jairus. 
Their doubt is evident. They have no confidence in Jesus whatsoever. He cannot help. And what irony. What irony in this situation that the person they're trying to encourage Jairus to leave is the very one, the only one who can actually solve their problem. And this is the world today. They say, Christian, give up your antiquated beliefs. Why do you go and sit in some church on a Sunday night when you could be doing something else? Your beliefs can't help you. Why do you read that old book? You believe those old stories? And they say that this is all just crutches for weak minds who who somehow need some fantasy to get by in life. And they say that Christianity has no practical application. The world will tell you that your solutions as a Christian are weak and powerless and that we shouldn't follow them. Instead, we should go with what the world believes. Use the world's methods. And we saw with the woman with the hemorrhage last time that the world couldn't help her. Every doctor, she had seen everyone there was to see, spent all the money there was, and they couldn't give her a solution. And it's the same today. The world screams, follow us because we know the right way. And they want us to give up and walk away from the only place where there is actual answers. Jesus, the Bible, the word of God. And the world desperately wants us to follow its way. When if we look at the track record of the world, it has only gotten worse. And will only continue to get worse, as the Bible tells us. We must today be able to defend what we believe. We must trust in the word as our only source for the future hope. And the answers to the tragedies and and, and difficulties and sadness and pain that's inherent in this world. We must trust Christ. Just as Jairus does. Now Jesus wasn't a part of this conversation. But he hears. And then he interjects with this sweet interjection. He turns to Jairus and he makes a statement. He says, don't fear. Only believe. And it might seem a strange statement at first. But fear is a common theme for Mark. And I think we might have mentioned it last time. But in each of Jesus' demonstrations of his power, fear has been a reaction. Mark 4.40, when Jesus calms the storm, says this. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Mark 5.15, after the demoniac, it says, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind. The very man who had the legion. And you would think they're rejoicing. Wonderful. But no, it says, and they became frightened. They, they became frightened. With the woman, Mark 5.33 When she was discovered, it says, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came to him and fell at his feet. And then after Jesus walks on water in Mark 6, 50, we're told, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, in each of these instances, the fear comes after the miracle. The miracle happens and the response is fear. Because fear is a natural response for one who's in the presence of of, of God, who does these incredible things that no one else can do. Fear is a natural response because when we see holy God working, we're reminded of our own sin and our, our own lack of worthiness. But not this time. This time it was the fear of a desperate, grief stricken father. 
And this time, uh, the, 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 the fear actually precedes the miracle. The miracle comes later. But Jesus tells him, do not fear. Because Jesus, knowing the hearts of men, as John 2 tells us, he knows that doubt is creeping into Jairus' heart. And doubt leads to fear. And the source of his fear is the well-being of his child, I believe. Now he has learned of the death of his child. There must have been a million things going through his mind. Fear of seeing the dead body of his little girl when he returned home. The fear of seeing the grief of his wife. The fear of having failed miserably as a father to bring salvation to his little girl. And the list could go on. But Jesus commands him. What Jesus, when Jesus says, don't fear, that's a command. It's in the imperative mood. And he says, stop fearing. Why? Because there's no basis for your fear when I am here. Jesus says, no fear. Fear has no place in the presence of the one who will drive out fear. He says, only believe. Two imperatives, two commands. And they're both in the present tense. And the only reason I say that is because it indicates an expected ongoing action. So he's not saying just, don't fear now, but you can carry on fearing later. He's saying, don't fear, ongoingly. Only believe, ongoingly. He is saying, continue in the faith that brought you to me. Don't forget what prompted you to come to me in the first place. Continue in that faith. Don't let that faith fail. Persevere. Trust. Live out that faith and act on it, even in the face of the hardest circumstances. And I think Jesus would say the same thing to us today. Don't fear. Only believe. To those believers in Israel, in Lebanon, in Gaza even now. Don't fear. Only believe. Because, you see, the thing with us as humans is that We think for some reason that Christ's faithfulness diminishes when our circumstances get hard. And that's not true. That's not true. It's the inverse. Christ's faithfulness doesn't diminish when our circumstances get hard. Hebrews 13 verse 5 to 6. I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or even at the end of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's so easy for us when times become tough or when adversity strikes. For us to change what we believe about God dependent on our circumstances. Right? And we allow ourselves to think that all of a sudden, God is not who he was before. That he is not loving. That he is not faithful. That he is not just. That for some reason... Our circumstances have some bearing on who God is. We forget Malachi 3.6, where God himself says, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. So when difficulty comes, we must hear Jesus' words. Don't fear, only believe. Don't run from me. Come closer to me. Stay with me. Be at my feet. Let me come with you to the location of your difficulty. One commentator said this about Jairus, the faith which he had shown in coming to Jesus for help, he must steadily maintain. It was the only fitting response in his helplessness. And that's true for us. The only fitting response in our helplessness is to go to Jesus. Because 
I don't know about you, but so many things in this life make me feel helpless. We work really hard with our kids, and so often I feel helpless. Like, Lord, I, I, I've tried to teach this lesson a thousand times. Lord, I've tried to, to, to make them desire to read their Bibles more every day since they've been born, and yet... There's still so much to be done. I feel so helpless. With my own sin, Lord, I've brought this to you so many times and I've just asked you to help me so many times and yet I continue to fail. I feel so helpless. Let alone a man whose daughter has died. There is nothing anyone can do. Only Christ. And Luke adds in his rendition of the story, in Luke 8 verse 50, that Jesus affirms the result. He adds an extra bit. He says this. Don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. So he says, stay the course, Jairus. Reject the fear. Keep the faith, and your daughter will be saved. Now, obviously, that's not a promise for us for today in everything. That's Jesus saying specifically to Jairus at this specific moment in time, this promise. We cannot take this as some idea that the Christian life will be should be free from difficulty or struggle. That's, that's not a reality. And the interesting thing about this story is Jairus is silent. After his first words, we hear nothing from Jairus. We don't know his response. We don't know whether he was stood there. Like when the woman takes Jesus' time, was he stood there going, woman, get out of the way. I need to get to my daughter, right? Or is he, was he patient or was he kind? But what we don't know any of this. We don't know his attitude as he goes towards the house. Regardless, they go. And Jesus dismisses the crowd and the rest of the disciples and he moves on with his inner circle and the father. So, so far we've seen the desperation and the doubt caused by fear. And unfortunately, I can't tell you it gets any better now because we get to the despair caused by death. Look at verse 38 with me. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And we can't probably imagine the scene. The cultural way of mourning at the time was quite an elaborate affair and very different from certainly an English funeral uh, or, or um, anything like that in England would be a very somber affair. Everyone's wearing black and everyone's quiet. And if your kids make a noise, then you get dirty looks, all that kind of stuff. And the Jewish version was, was much more elaborate and much louder. The Mishnah, which is basically a written commentary on an oral interpretation of the Old Testament law. The Mishnah says this. That even the poorest husband in Israel should hire not less than two flutes and one wailing woman if his wife dies. So there were clearly expectations of, of if somebody dies, what you had to do. And the practice was to hire professional mourners for these kinds of things. And they would literally hire, it's exactly what it sounds like, a wailing woman. Someone who would come and scream and wail and lament. It was a loud affair. Which is why the ESV says that there was commotion. But it's more than that. That word can mean lots of voices, like a clamor. Uh, but also the ideal of turmoil or unrest. A state of confusion. And Jesus walked into this maelstrom of emotion. This storm of emotion. 
the despair caused by death is unpredictable and devastating to those who are affected by it. And it, I'm sure that if you've had someone close to you die, you, you might not have expected how you reacted in that moment or how it made you feel. You might, we might think that we know how we will react. But once we get into that moment, then we, we can often be surprised as to how we react. And our common social cues would say Jesus should enter this respectfully, you know, kind of gauge the room, look around and see what everyone else is doing and then copy. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? That he, he doesn't work to those social norms. Instead, and remember the room's in an uproar. This is a loud thing. He's not walking into a quiet room. People wailing, lamenting, crying, screaming maybe. And Jesus walks in. So he doesn't whisper. He doesn't walk in and go, guys, what's going on? He walks in and says, what's the racket? You know, uh, so everybody can hear. And, and you can imagine how people must have reacted. Who is this guy? Doesn't he know what's happened? What a nerve to come in and behave this way. But then Jesus doubles down and he says, the child isn't dead, but is asleep. And the reaction, as we see, is laughter. They turn from wailing and mourning and despair to mockery and derision. But before we move on, we have a bit of a problem here. What does Jesus mean? Because we've been told multiple times that the girl is dead. And Luke records in in chapter 8, verse 55, that when Jesus does heal her, her spirit returns to her. So she was definitely dead. So why does Jesus say the girl's not dead? Well, we know that Jesus cannot lie. John 1 verse 14 says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. So he's not being deceptive. And we know the Bible is inerrant and infallible and therefore the text of scripture is accurate and has not made a mistake. John 17, 17, Jesus says, your word is truth. Psalm 12, 6, your word is pure. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. So then, holding all these things together, what does Jesus mean? Why did Jesus say she was only sleeping? Now, sleep was used euphemistically or idiomatically, however you want to put it, for death. So sleep was used to represent death. But it wouldn't make sense if that's what Jesus means. Because this is exactly, this is literally what he'd be saying. Don't fear, she's not dead, she's only dead. That's what he'd be saying if he was using it euphemistically, right? So what what Jesus was doing here, I think, was making another wonderful assertion as to his power and authority over death. He's saying that death for him is no barrier. Death for him is as sleep, it's like sleep. Because he has the power to overcome and conquer death. Well, how can I be so confident? Well, he's done this already once before. If you turn forward in your Bibles to John chapter 11, then we see the story of Lazarus. And we probably remember this story where Jesus is told that his friend Lazarus is unwell. And Jesus delays and then Lazarus dies. And in John uh, chapter 11, verse 11, uh, we're told this. Then he said... Uh, uh, Sorry, after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. 
And there, so there are lots of similarities between what's going on in Lazarus' story and Jairus' daughter's story. Jesus delayed going to Lazarus and he died. Jesus delayed going to Jairus' daughter. She died. Jesus referred to Lazarus as having fallen asleep. Same with Jairus' daughter. Now, if you're confused at this point, you're in good company because the disciples were too. Uh, look at uh, verse 12. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. And, uh, and, and then we're given a little bit more detail. Verse 13. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to them. So this is helpful because Jesus is doing the same thing in Mark. He intentionally diverts from Jairus' daughter so that he might demonstrate again to his disciples and to the family the power he possessed over death. He says to the disciples in John that he's glad he delayed. Why? So that they might believe. And what did he say to Jairus? Don't fear, only believe. So Jesus makes this amazing statement to reassure Jairus and the family that the state the girl was in was only temporary. She was not experiencing eternal final death and he would wake her as easily as one wakes someone from sleep. What's the reaction of the people? Laughter, mockery, derision. Despair can cause many reactions, but because of their lack of faith, I believe, because of their doubt and derision, Jesus evicts them from the house. He kicks them out. And it means that they don't get to see what happens next, which is wonderful. So we come to our final scene, scene four, the defeat of death. So we've seen the desperation that death causes. We've seen the the doubt that death causes. We've seen the despair that death causes, but now we see the defeat of death. Now we see Jesus put his foot on the neck of death and draw this girl back to life. Look at verse 40 in Mark 5 with me. And they began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talita kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. So in contrast to the loud clamor that was going on before, the house is now quiet and Jesus enters the room. And they see the little body of the girl on the bed. And here, I think we get a wonderful perspective on the gentle, caring nature of our Lord. Remember who this Jesus is. This is Jesus, the one who calms the storms and stands in the face of nature's fury with absolute calm. And with a word causes calm to come. Jesus is the one who stands before leaders and powerful religious figures without without any kind of worry, with complete serenity and confidence, and he challenges them to their very core. This is Jesus who removes mobs from the temple uh, by the force of his will. Jesus is the one who elicits fear in the hearts of the demonic forces, so much so they beg for his mercy. Jesus who challenges crowds. This Jesus, he stoops down to the bed of this little girl, this precious child, and he calls her a little lamb. That's another translation of Talita, little lamb. And with gentleness and love, he effortlessly calls her back to life. 
And it's no less of a command here than what he said to Jairus. The form of the Hebrew verb there, that word kum is, is a Hebrew word which means to arise, to get up. But here again, it's an imperative, it's a command. He commands her, arise. And immediately, Mark's favorite word, she gets up and begins to walk around. And they were astonished. They were overcome. And I think Mark puts these details in here about the eating and the walking around to, to show again that this is a real story. This wasn't some thing that they dreamed in some, you know, emotion-filled uh, mirage or something. This girl got up, walked around and was fed. This wasn't a ghost. This wasn't an apparition. This wasn't some weird thing. This is a factual event that actually happened. But what really had they just seen? They had just seen a man defeat death, which is something that can't be done. So at this point, we need to go back to the question we left unanswered at the beginning. What about death? And the answer, can Jesus do anything? Does he have the qualifications to save? And the only answer is a resounding yes. Absolutely. Because what happened here is a reflection of Christ, of what Christ would later go on to do. The reality is that those Jesus healed could have gotten sick again. And they most certainly died. Although Jairus' daughter was raised to life, she died again. She's not still walking around today. So no matter how wonderful this resurrection was, it was only temporary. And all of this is pointing towards a greater reality of Messiah's role. This is the gospel message. Jesus came to conquer sin and death. Not just one time in a little girl in Capernaum, but for eternity. Not just to heal people's ailments in Galilee in the first century. He came to tackle the core issue that has dogged, degraded and destroyed man since Genesis 3.15. And here he is proving that he is the one who has the power to do exactly that. Because the idea of resurrection is pivotal to the gospel. If Jesus was to go on and die and be buried and stay dead and buried, the gospel is irrelevant. It's not even good news because he's just the same as every other charlatan or any other man who ever existed. Without resurrection, the gospel is meaningless. It's not good news. And Paul takes this up. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, um, I, I always refer to this as the resurrection chapter because uh, it is. Um, so if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and we read from verse 13 to 19, we see what Paul says about the importance of the idea of resurrection in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he's, uh, he's, he's addressing this um, argument that there's no such thing as resurrection. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is what? worthless you are still in your sins then all then those also who have fallen asleep in christ have perished if we have hoped in christ in this life only we are we are of all men most to be pitied the reality is if resurrection isn't true 
If our Jesus isn't strong enough, if our limitations on him don't allow him to be able to resurrect, if this is just some nice little story that's told in some old book which just tells us about things that people dreamed up a couple of thousand years ago, then our faith is worthless. But this is the good news today, isn't it, church? That we worship a risen Christ. We worship not just a man, but God incarnate. The only one who could step into our sin-filled world and remain pure. The only one who could live amongst us and not be corrupted. He is the only one with the power to still storms and save stricken souls. The only one who could hang on a cross and bear the weight of all the sin of those who would turn to him one day. The only one who could withstand the wrath of God against sin and survive. The only one who could die a human death and then defeat death in the process. So today, church, we should be encouraged. This is your God. He is the victorious king. He is a risen king. And right now he is in heaven, reigning at the right hand of God, ready to come back again one day for his people. And this is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus didn't just come to save sinners, but he was able to save the sinners that he came to save. He was able to do it. And the thing is, if you're not a believer today, if you haven't turned from your sin, if you are like the mockers in the story who doubted Jesus, who laughed, who thought they knew better, or who were just uninterested, then... Unless you turn to Christ and submit your life to him, you'll be like those he evicted out of the house. And you'll be like, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, dead in your trespasses and sins and remain there. So my encouragement to you today is the opposite of Jesus to Jairus. At least in the first part. Jesus told Jairus not to fear. But if you don't have Jesus as your saviour, you must fear. You absolutely must fear. And then the second part is true as well. You must believe. Because faith in Jesus is the only way to heaven. John says this in 1 John four seventeen to 19. He says this. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So if we're a believer today, we must not fear. Only believe. But if we're not, or if we think of those who we love who are not, they must fear. And we must help them see that they need to fear. So in Mark 5 today, we've seen how Jesus is the defeater of death, which is at the core of the gospel message. And that should cause us To rejoice. To rejoice that Jesus has done exactly what he came here to do. And we are the beneficiaries of this. Let's close with an encouragement from Paul from the resurrection chapter. If you look at verse 50, uh, I'm going to read it. You can read along if you'd like. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And this is what should give us encouragement. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, that the labor, knowing in the Lord that your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so grateful for these examples that we see of, of faith, of these people who didn't have your whole word in their hands for them to read and to take encouragement from like we do. And yet they acted with such faith. We thank you for your grace and your kindness. Lord, I pray that as we go out into this next week, that we would remember to be at the feet of Christ daily. That if we're believers here today, that we would rejoice in the reality that we have a, a victorious and risen Christ who has defeated and conquered death, which means that we are able as believers to live differently that we are able to defeat sin through the work of christ and i just pray that we'd be willing to wage that war this week because lord we are we are so weak and sinful and fallen we need your help each day but lord we also pray for those that we know children and family members and friends and colleagues and acquaintances who don't know you that this community that doesn't know you this fallen city which is which is so enamored with everything that goes against your way. Lord, would we be praying for them? Would we be coming to your feet for them? Praying on on their behalf for their souls. Lord, thank you again for these people, for their time tonight to, to come and listen to your word. And I pray, Lord, that our time together will indeed have brought glory to your name. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our risen King. Amen.